We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. I'm joined in the studio this evening by a couple of our regular commentators, Ross Feingold being one of them. Good evening. And Yuan Ming Chao being the other one. It's great to be here again. Right, tonight we'll be discussing a state visit to Taiwan, plans by a former Ever Airways chairman to open a new airline, problems with a new bicycle rental system, and President Tsai Ing-wen's Twitter account. But we'll begin with some news that we all woke up to this morning, and that was the death of Chinese democracy activist Liu Xiaobo, who of course has been sick with cancer for quite a long time, and he died on Thursday, age 61. But President Tsai Ing-wen Wen wasted no time in sending her condolences to Leo's family, and she also took to her Facebook page to quote a public statement issued by Leo in 2009, in which the democracy activist expressed optimism about a future of free China, saying that no forces can stop human nature's desire for freedom. So, Ross, you saw Tsai's comments. What do you read into them? Well, Tsai uh, has uh, recently get, gotten into this habit of taking to Twitter to discuss uh, major uh, domestic or international events. It's good that uh, Taiwan is getting its message out by a medium that's increasingly popular around the world. Uh, the, the the key thing with this statement, though, is who will pay attention. And uh, if, if there was a political purpose to letting uh, the world know amidst these events and, and the tragic death of Liu Xiaobo that uh, Taiwan, uh, analogous to Liu Xiaobo, is also seeking its freedom um, from China uh, and, and does not want to be under the thumb of the regime in Beijing. Uh, I don't know how effective that will be, right? It's going to be lost in the, the amid the statements from other governments and human rights organizations around the world. I, I don't think people are going to say, oh, Taiwan is also fighting for freedom in China just simply as a result of this tweet. Well, I, I agree with uh, you on that. Um, and uh, I think the uh, the fact that, uh, well, I saw on BBC that uh, they had quoted her, her, her tweet. Um, but I think uh, Tsai Ing-wen uh, is really, um, since uh, the Tiananmen uh, anniversary, she's been becoming more vocal on these uh, issues of democracy in China. And, of course, um, she's not going to make any friends with the uh, Chinese government by, by tweeting on this subject. But I think um, this was a good a message um, just to, you know, to, 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 to let the, the Internet know that, you know, Taiwan uh, cares about uh, the democratic developments that are happening across the street. But but here's the key thing with that. Uh, if the, the strategic decision was made to discuss human rights issues in China more frequently, especially via Twitter using English, uh, it, I think it runs the risk of, of confusion in the global community in that people think, oh, so Taiwan is still part of China and, and they have a say in what's happening with these issues in China? Because, I mean, we here in Taiwan, we know the intention is to say hey, Taiwan is a democracy. We are not under China's control, and nor would we want to be given these human rights situations that are the subject of, of the tweets. But, uh, again, people outside Taiwan and China who don't follow cross-trace affairs are going to be unfamiliar with, with the actual situation. And uh, it does run the risk, in my opinion, that uh, people outside the uh, 
the, the space who follow this closely will will get the impression that Taiwan really is a part of China, and that's why Taiwan is commenting, and, and the distinction might get lost. So it, it's a it, it's a strategy that has some merit, but it needs to be very carefully uh, carried out in order to ensure that people understand that Taiwan is not a part of China. Funny you should say that, actually, Ross. Because something else happened earlier this week, and that was the Formosan Association for Public Affairs, which came out and said much the same, with its basically Washington DC director Kun Blau saying that the Tsai administration should end all Taiwan naming references to China, including the Republic of China. Now, of course, this call came after the White House mistakenly referred to China's president as the president of the Republic of China at a G20 summit meeting. Of course, that was the G20 in Europe, where they all popped off to to have their conversations. Now, the FAPA Washington director, Kun Blau, was quoted as saying earlier this week that it's time for the Tsai administration to call Taiwan Taiwan and not the Republic of China. And he went on to say that the US and its lawmakers no longer refer to the Republic of China in Taiwan-related bills there, since they understand that Taiwan is its own sovereign independent country, and the official US position is to call Taiwan, well, Taiwan. So, Yun Ming, do you reckon that the government should turn around and say, right, we're not going to call it the Republic of China, now we're going to, we're going to call it the Republic of Taiwan? Uh, in a word, no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, the, the FAF president uh, uh, issued an open letter on June 27th also to President of the United States, you know, to, to change the representative office names from Taipei to Taiwan. Um, and th this is nothing new. I mean, um, I mean, it comes at a time where uh, Tsai Ing-wen is facing uh, increased antagonism from Beijing. And so uh, the deep green is going to pressure her to take a more uh, harder stance on cross-strait relations, uh, especially when we come closer to 2018. But um, I think that um, when you what you mentioned earlier with the the ROC, uh, it is the largest common denominator uh, in Taiwan right now, and even the mainstream DPP has concluded that since at least 2000. So, um, I mean, to throw that out. Well, it's good for FAPA. I mean, they're, they're they're not in government, so they can make this comment, and and they they could take a a political position, as is their right, whether uh, in Taiwan or in the United States. Uh, both places are democracy, respect freedom of speech, and their view has a lot of public support in Taiwan. We know that, but but the the government, whether it's a KMT government or a DPP government, is constrained by the fact that this is the country's official name, the institutions of the polity, the constitution, uh, other aspects of official documents, etc all refer to the Republic of China. And uh, any change to that would be seen as a change to the status quo. Uh, China would certainly have a, a rather vociferous opinion uh, on changing the, the name or removing the, the ROC and, and replacing it with Republic of Taiwan. And, and uh, despite the public letter to United States government officials uh, from FAPA, uh, how the United States or other countries would react uh, is certainly unknown. Uh, but whether uh, countries in Europe or Asia, uh, excluding the United States, would say, sure, you can change your representative office name uh, from Taipei to Taiwan, whether these governments would accept that, it, it's unknown. But I, I think 
the likelihood is low because China would pressure them just the way China in, in recent months has been pressuring the host governments of those small number of offices, not embassies, but representative offices uh, that still had Taiwan rather than Taipei in their name. Right. We, this has been uh, reported in the news that the four or five countries where, where China has gone to those governments and said that the representative office from Taiwan uh, that has Taiwan in the name, it need, the name needs to be changed to be consistent with the names in most places around the world, which we all know is is, is Taipei, not Taiwan, or the, the Tecros, the T in Tecros for Taipei, not Taiwan. And clearly China has a policy of, of making sure that does not change from Taipei to Taiwan. Right. Obviously, Klunbao made a point and basically saying when U.S. lawmakers refer to the Republic of China when they're passing laws related to Taiwan, they don't actually call it the Republic of China, they call it Taiwan. Yeah, um, but there's an implicit uh, recognition of the Republic of China uh, that's been that's been in place, and uh, any, as as Ross said, any any name change would would uh, would rock the, the the status quo. I mean, uh, I understand, and I can I can see what uh, where FAPA is coming from with all this antagonism coming from Beijing. But of course, uh, you don't fight fire with fire. Um, we need uh, comprehensive ways and policies to 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 work on cross-strait relations, and so. FAPA should, should also look at what Tsai ing is doing and how she's trying to maintain the status quo in the cross-strait uh, region. And, um, I mean, you can look at, uh, as I said, with the ROC being the largest common denominator. And are we going to sacrifice that uh, for a country in name only, but that is, in fact, a reality, just a U.S.-Japanese protectorate? Right, let's move on from that topic because it's way too complicated for this time of the morning when we're recording the show. And let's look at a visit this week by Paraguay's President Horatio Cartes. Now, he arrived in Taiwan on Tuesday for a three-day state visit. And, of course, he was honoured with full military honours and a 21-gun salute outside the presidential building in downtown Taipei. And, of course, while most, and if not all, foreign dignitaries that come here, or foreign heads of state, I should say, that come here are accorded this honour, this, of course, visit marked the 60th anniversary of the establishment of bilateral ties between Taipei and Ascension. However, Cartes's trip also coincided, coincidentally, with the official closure on July the 12th of Taiwan's embassy in Panama and the Panamanian embassy in Taipei, after, of course, Panama severed ties in favour of Beijing back in June. So, Ross, what do you see into this trip? This Paraguay's President Horatio Cartes comes here, lots of pomp, lots of circumstance, lots of security we've seen the security uh, you're certainly correct because i had the unfortunate experience of passing through the airport uh, simultaneous to the president's delegation and there certainly were a lot of police and uh, hey, let's be frank this is to put on put on a nice show uh, there's no security threat to the president of paraguay when visiting taiwan i don't, I don't think there's any antagonism by the taiwan po uh, populace towards paraguay nor do i think any paraguayan opponents are going to fly all the way to taiwan to <laughs> assassinate the good president of paraguay but uh, be that as like I said, um, it, it's a good show to have a lot of security. As you said, it's part of the show to ha have a, a, a big gun salute outside the presidential office, review and honor guard. Uh, but but the, the fact is, whenever these visits occur, whether it's the president of the ROC 
on Taiwan, going to uh, visit African, uh, Central America, South American countries, or the heads of state, heads of government of those countries coming here to Taipei. Everyone puts on a good show. Everyone smiles. Everyone says, you are our greatest eternal friend. We love you. Thank you for your support. And then uh, the, that does not preclude the possibility, as Panama did, of, of ending ties. There, there seems to be uh, very often these situations, an assumption that uh, both sides are sincere when they say these things. In, in actuality, in, in the realm of uh, diplomacy, foreign relations, uh, each country is uh, trying to extract from the relationship what it wants. Uh, so uh, people keep repeating and, and looking back at President Tsai's visit to Panama a little over a year uh, ago, uh, a little over a year before ties were cut, and, and the statements made by the Panamanian president uh, saying how great the, the relationship is and it's never going to change. Fast forward a year and it changed. So uh, it, we could all agree that it's crucially important for the government here in Taipei to maintain official relations with the countries that are willing to do so. But we shouldn't take the uh, smiles and expressions of friendship to mean that it's going to be eternal. Now, Yuan Ming, I mean, did you read anything special into this trip this week by the Panamanian or Paraguayan? <laughs> Sorry, President. Maybe and he you, will get yes. assassinated. <laughs> <laughs> well, well I, I totally agree with Ross. Uh, I, I mean, we have to look at it from a symbolic uh, point of view. I mean, this is a reaffirmation of uh, Taiwan's uh, diplomatic commitments. Uh, Paraguay is a uh, the only country in South America to recognize the ROC. Um, and both sides, they also reaffirm trade and investment. Um, but, I mean, it's a drop in the bucket. The two-way trade, according to TITRA, is only about $47 million U.S. dollars uh, both ways. So um, so it's a very symbolic thing. The, the one thing that I found curious was that uh, – um, during uh, the president, the Paraguayan president's speech, uh, his references to uh, Chiang Kai-shek, uh, there were three, uh, were not translated at all. So, I mean, I, I think uh, MOFA was doing some uh, uh, reauthoring of... Uh, of his speech. I believe the word is expunging you're looking for there. <laughs> well, this got, a, this got a lot of media attention in, in um, the local Chinese language media, and it was picked up a bit by English language media as well, that, that the simultaneous translator uh, omitted the three references to Chiang Kai-shek, and the, the speeches were exchanged beforehand so that the Taiwan government had time to prepare, or the translator had time pr to prepare. Uh, any suggestion that the, the three omissions were uh, accidental would be very hard to believe. Uh, so clearly, uh, the, uh, this links um, to our earlier discussion about the, the Taiwan ROC and, and, and references to Chiang Kai-shek would not be very popular with a uh, DPP government, obviously, and, and this was a political decision. Uh, unfortunately, it's backfired in the sense that it's taken up 24 hours of conversation in, in the media rather than talking more about the substantive uh, achievements, however modest, in, in the bilateral trade relationship. Uh, should the, the government could have handled it better, frankly. They could have very easily said to the Paraguayan side, love you, thank you for coming, love the speech, but we just need to explain to you in, in, in 2017, this kind of reference seems a bit antiquated. That could have been a very brief conversation. I don't think the Paraguayans would have been offended if MOFA had done that. Yeah. And, of course, there was another small story this week, of course, Central America again and Taiwan mm. ties. When Honduras's ambassador to Taiwan was forced to tell reporters at a specially organized press conference that bilateral ties actually remain strong. He was also forced to deny reports that some of his staff would be reassigned to serve in China. Now, this rebuttal um, stemmed from a, a report that 
Apparently, some Honduran embassy staffer was at dinner in Kaohsiung with a friend and told said friend that, well, they might be sent to China in mid-July. Now, this was a very small story, but again, it came at the same time a year... Well, Panama closed its embassy and the Paraguayan em- em- president was in town. So did you read in anything into this Honduras ambassador story, you and me, or just think... It's nothing? angst. Angst, yeah. It was just angst. Media yeah. angst, yeah. Um, three paragraphs it made, basically, yeah, and that was it. Anyway, let's move on to a story that made rather more than three paragraphs, and that was former Ever Airways chairman Zhang Wei unveiling the full name and logo for his planned new airline this week, and he said that Starlux, and that's the name of the airline, could begin recruiting in September. But, oh, there's an O, and the O is somewhat rather controversial because current aviation laws make it rather difficult for individuals to start their own airlines, understandably. But, of course, when Jung first announced plans for his new airline back in April of this year, the Civil Aeronautics Administration suddenly went, oh, we could look into whether some of those restrictions imposed on businesses establishing airlines could be lifted, which, of course, didn't go down too well with certain people who said that the the Civil Aviation Body was changing the rules to benefit Jung, and they've already named any possible changes to rules regarding the establishment of airlines as the Jung War Way provision. Well, it's interesting, based on recent history of the aviation industry, I say recent going back 15, 20 years, uh, starting from the late 90s, uh, it seems rather easy to close up and fail an airline than it is to start it, given the number of uh, airlines that have uh, entered and exited, uh, focus on the exit uh, from the industry over the last 20 years. In the late 90s, there was a round of consolidation with, with uh, smaller airlines. Um, most of them were swallowed up by China Airlines or, or EVA. Uh, and then in recent years, we've had the financial difficulties of uh, Far Eastern and, and then TransAsia. Uh, but uh, as a matter of... Uh, choice for consumers, um, uh, hopefully lower prices because there'll be more competition, and also getting the message out that Taiwan is is uh, an economy that's connected to the world. I think we should welcome this and not seek to protect uh, EVA and, and China Airlines. Obviously, uh, both airlines would be concerned about competition. Uh, EVA is, is a very well-run airline, uh, as anyone who takes it would, would, would agree. Uh, and China Airlines is state controlled well of course the organs of state the the regulators would seek to uh, protect a state controlled airline and uh, that just shows the dangers of the government running an airline right, do you see starlux taking off no pun intended there, isn't it? <laughs> but, you know. well i mean um based on the playing field you know with the exit of trans air and and um Cross-strait relations, you know, uh, being cut uh, with the the tourism uh, levels are down. Um, It it really depends on what Starlux, uh, what kind of uh, niche, or is it going for a niche market? Is it going for... uh, budget or or what is, what is its uh, routes? He actually Jung Jung Huawei actually described it saying it was the new hope of Taiwan's aviation industry and his airline would be a top tier carrier. Top tier? What's the what's the market for top tier in Taiwan? Well, uh, clearly he he wants to. Uh, um, uh, 
go to battle with his former friends and That's relatives over relatives. at EVA. <laughs> the feud, the uh, well, because feud. EVA is a full-service airline. It's not a budget airline. It focuses on both short and long-haul routes. Uh, and if, if this is what Mr. Zhang is saying, then clearly he's, he's looking to battle um, on, on the long-haul, on the full-service, not uh, uh, a niche, say, with short-haul budget to close-by destinations like Korea or Japan or Hong Kong. Uh, so it, it, it'll be probably a battle for, for the full-service. And also keep in mind, uh, I referred to China Airlines uh, earlier, China Airlines uh, does well on some routes and they do poorly on others. It was it was in the news recently that China Airlines is considering ending its new Taipei to New York route. It, it's just shocking to believe that uh, the government's you know government-owned national airline would not fly from Taipei to New York because it, it just cuts off access to Taiwan, um, not just for tourists but for business as well. Uh, but EVA can make money on that route. You know, why can't China Airlines? And that's probably what, what Zhang is looking at that, that there's space to compete, uh, especially with a government-run airline. But yeah, I mean, you're in Ming. You reckon that Zhang is doing this to dig at his family, of course, who started Ever Airways, and then, of course, he was booted out of the chairmanship because there was a dispute after his father died, and basically the other family just kicked him out of his job at Ever Airways. Do you think he's trying to get his own back here? Well, Ever Airways has said uh, in, in previous months that, you know, it will not, you know, uh, seek to make this a feud. Uh, of course, that's what they say in public, but, uh, I mean, there's, there's got to be bad blood. Um, he was ousted... Uh, you know, after he flew away from Taiwan. And so um, there is, you know, this uh, this notion that, um, you know, what, what is the, where is the overlap? But, but I mean, if you look at the, the, uh, the field, I mean, um, as you mentioned earlier about China Airlines, they're, they're consolidating their, their flight routes. And, um, um, and to that, they're benefiting by cutting some costs because, and they're ad- added with that, you know, fuel costs are down. So, um, that could play a good advantage for this new airlines. But, of course, I think it's a bit earlier to tell because we have to see, you know, what, which routes that he will be serving. With this. And do you think the CAA will go ahead with their plans to revise their restrictions on starting an airline? Or do you think they might not do it because of the, 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 it might basically backfire on them? Yeah, I think that really depends on, you know, how the plan is laid out um, so that the CAA sees that it... it it makes the the playing field within Taiwan's aviation industry um, uh, has the you know the combination of uh, competition with uh, the adequate red- regulation. Do you see him poaching top level management from China Airlines and Ever Airways, Yuan Ming? Well, I mean, with uh, the dissolution of Transair, I mean, Far Eastern was already looking at you know the remnants of Transair. They were considering a merger with the with other parts of, of the remains. Uh, I think, um, as you mentioned earlier, September, they'll be uh, looking for uh, talent and, and personnel. Um, there, there is that, you know, the remnants of, of that of that firm. Um, but um, of course, TransAsia Airways doesn't have a very good reputation, of course. <clears throat> We've talked about TransAsia Airways before. Yes. Some rather sad stories. So, of course, whether Jung will employ them is another matter. But, of course, he is a man that knows people with aeroplanes. And he listed his aeroplanes he fancies to buy for his airline this week. And they were all rather expensive. And some of them were long-distance haul ones, I believe. A Boeing 777X or whatever it's called. Well, yeah, that, that this is a, an aircraft that does have the ability to fly nonstop from from Taipei to places like New York. So again, it looks like he's 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 ready to compete in the long haul in the full service space. 
So watch this space and we'll see if Starlux Airlines actually takes off in the coming months. But for now, we have to take a short break, but we'll be right back after these brief commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan this week, and we talked about airplanes in the first half of the show. Now we're going to talk bicycles, or O-Bike. Now, the Singapore-based company began operating in Taiwan in April, but it has since run foul of authorities in Taipei, as the stationless cycle rental system means that users can simply leave their bikes anywhere. And anywhere they've been leaving them, yes, they've been leaving them just about anywhere. In parking spaces for scooters and motorcycles, in random public spaces, in no parking areas, and simply discarding them on the sides of the road. I know that for a fact, because there was two in my alleyway two days ago, and I live in a one-way alleyway alleyway so there's no need for anybody to cycle down there now the new taipei city government has banned the parking of o bikes in certain places now while the taipei city government is drafting a proposal for regulating bike renting systems so ross o bike is o bike the next uber well we should encourage competition just like in the airline space uh if the authorities gave permission for obi to set up uh, um the stations uh, uh then they should have considered what where people would be parking the bikes afterwards so there seems to be a a, a lack of thought here to to the second half of 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 the user experience uh, where the bikes would be left at, at the end but there's another very important point here gavin and, and uh, i can't say this uh with with a sufficient amount of of, of opinion which is for too long, the scooter, motor scooter, motorbike users have been subsidized with free parking, and now they're crying foul. And I think that's wrong. Right? So for, for decades, scooter users have been able to park in most places without paying. And, and that's a subsidy. And that's why people like taking scooters, because you get free parking. And, and it keeps them away from taking um, uh, bus M MRT or, or uh, more expensive modes of transportation like taxis. Uh, that really needs to stop. So if the, if the government's going to get mad at a government municipal level, Taipei City, New Taipei City, other parts around Taipei, Taiwan are going to get mad at Obike, they should be getting mad at the scooter users as well and, and stop giving scooter users free parking. Have you rented an Obike? No, I've seen them, as you said, parked in the strangest places. Um, and I'm wondering if they're parked in these isolated areas, if they'll ever be picked up again. Actually, it's, it's installation art. <laughs> <laughs> that, was my, that was my question. Because obviously, the, the, the U-bike one, which is the Taipei City one, they, you park them in a place, and then yeah. they come around, they check the bikes, they take the, the broken bikes, they put them to one side, and they're always checking and making sure the bikes are working. But if this company from Singapore, you can just randomly, willy-nilly park these bikes anywhere... They must be spending more money rounding these bikes up, yeah, than than anybody else, surely. Well, but but there's there, there's a number of elements into that process which clear, clearly they've tested in, in other locations and, and they, they they believe they can make money. Which is, you see that bike in your alley, Gavin, and you can just take it, right? If you you make the payment using the app, and we know you're not a big app payment kind of guy, but a lot of us are. And if you see the bike, uh, it's right there in your alley. Say, this is great. I don't have to walk over to that U bike station. So part of the problem actually here is not 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 just the the angst of of the scooter users who are losing their free parking, uh, but but also the, the, the people, in this case, it's the municipal governments behind things like U-Bike, because their technology, their business model, 
is suddenly outdated. There is suddenly a better alternative, which is that O bike is right there in, in your alley. And you can say, hey, this is great. I can just use it right now. I don't need to walk over to the nearest U bike station, which might be a few blocks away. So it suddenly creates a, a better alternative for consumers and actually you question do they have to collect the bikes or sometimes no because the the bikes are getting constantly reused wherever they're found and it's easy for the next user to make the payment and and unlock the bike and and cycle away again without having to walk over to a u-bike station so this is competition for u-bike and the people who uh, run that system in this case the city governments now they fear competition so they're they're going to be very grouchy about this well, I think, I mean, uh, we have to look at, you know, O-Bike in Taiwan. They said that this is, you know, this is a zero emission solution uh, for transportation. Uh, but, I mean, you also factor in the, all the, the tow trucks that are, you know, towing away these things. Yeah. Um, and you talk about a sharing economy. I mean, we're sharing the cost of individual misbehavior, too. So I, I think uh, to go back on an earlier point, you said there needs to be better coordination between the municipal governments and these uh, organizations at these businesses before they come in. Uh, that way, um, the the rules are in place. And if you look at the uh, some other countries, what what they're doing uh, in in terms of these misparked bikes, like uh, Singapore, they they have this point system to incentivize uh, good behavior and to discourage bad ones. But I mean, in the Netherlands, they're just. Uh, when, when it's towed away, then the, the user pays. Anyway, we're going to turn to Twitter now on President Tsai Ing-wen's adoption of the microblogging service to get her message across in both English and Japanese. Now, Taipei-based reporter Chris Horton recently wrote a piece for the New York Times about Tsai and tweeting, which ran under the headline, Muffled by China, Taiwan President Embraces Twitter as a Megaphone. And I spoke to him about it earlier this week. Good evening, Chris. Hi, Gavin. Right, obviously your article about Twitter was rather interesting, and it dug up some rather interesting facts about how long President Tsai Ing-wen has been Twittering, or tweeting, whatever you call it, and how successful it is. So, is it working? I, I think, uh, given President Tsai's measured approach to uh, pretty much everything that she does, uh, you know, this is, uh, she's built up a, uh, a, a good uh, following. It's tripled in the, in the last few months, uh, just... When I was working on this story, when I started working on it about a month ago, she was in the uh, in the mid eighties, uh, mid eighty thousands in terms of uh, followers, and now she's let's see, she's at yeah, hundred and eleven thousand. So people people are uh, you know they're checking in and, and following uh, following what she says. Um, as uh, I, I spoke with uh, Danielle Cave, uh, you know she she mentioned that uh, uh, President Tsai's message, you know, it's it's more. And Taiwan's message, you know, it's it's crucial that that people hear it, and there's there's uh, very few opportunities, uh, very few channels uh, for her to get the message out. And uh, in that way, there's a, there's a certain uh, Trump parallel. But uh, I, I think uh, there's, there's no uh, disrespect for the media coming from President Tsai. She's just uh, she has limited uh, international platforms for for her. Uh, for her to get her voice heard and, and Taiwan's voice heard. Right, apparently, according to your article, um, large numbers of foreign journalists and also politicians from other countries, you name US and Japan, are actually her Twitter friends, if you call them Twitter friends. Yeah, I think followers. People people are friends on Facebook, uh, and, you know, the joke is you uh, Twitter is where you go to argue with strangers. 
but uh, <clears throat> uh, I would say, yeah, the the uh, the media definitely now knows. It, you know, obviously, anybody who's covering Asia is going to be following her. But now I, th- I think there's a there's a much wider uh, wider net that's been cast. Uh, also, uh, in terms of politicians, uh, I guess what the, what her her office was telling me was that uh, roughly half of the politicians that were following her, and this was maybe uh, three weeks back, uh, were, were Japanese. So they they started uh, they started uh, tailoring they started writing messages in uh, Japanese, tweeting in Japanese. And those actually have been some of the uh, the biggest uh, the biggest tweet terms of uh, likes and retweets. So in terms of engagement, uh, her her Japanese tweets have have done the best, which which I think uh, says something about the uh, the view of of Taiwan from Japan. There, there are people that are interested in it joining uh, the World Health uh, Organization's World Health Assembly. There are uh, there was a recent tweet about wanting to uh, uh, join the uh, the TPP, and that was well received by uh, by Japanese uh, Twitter followers. But uh, it was also very poorly received by uh, by many Chinese uh, Chinese followers who uh, I mean presumably Chinese. They're tweeting in uh, simplified characters uh, and and generally being rude. Um, but uh, I think that that shows something. Actually, there was a there was a, and I mentioned in my article there was that tweet garnered uh, a bit of uh, criticism from the People's Daily in China, which also shows that maybe maybe this uh, this Twitter diplomacy, uh, this switch to English that and and Japanese that began in um, in January of this year, you know, maybe it's it's starting to uh, to reach a, a broader audience, and the fact that uh, Chinese state media feels compelled to uh, to even mention it because they hadn't really uh, discussed her before uh, her, her her tweeting before uh, I think that shows that it's, it's having some sort of impact and of course she started tweeting in 2010 and she only st- and most of that was in Chinese until May of 2014 yes it was all in Chinese uh, as, as far as I recall and if not uh, yeah maybe one or two English tweets uh, but it was all it was all pretty dry stuff uh, she wasn't the then, then um, and uh, she was, you know, not not getting a whole lot of engagement. Uh, Ch- Taiwanese people don't really uh, don't use Twitter the way that they use Facebook, uh, so it's uh, you know it's it's of limited use in communicating uh, with uh, with Ta- Taiwanese people. But it's it's a it's a very good platform uh, for for the the broader world. And uh, I think you know you, you can see an evolution. Uh, in the beginning, I think it was uh, it, it very it very much felt, even though she had been on uh, Twitter for for years, the initial tweets felt very kind of uh, testing the water. And now they're getting more confident. Uh, you know, she's displaying uh, a, a greater willingness to um, to to be a little bit bolder. Um, you know, without. You know, without reaching uh, Trump levels, obviously, uh, uh, always, always respectful and uh, generally, you know, uh, to the point. But just trying to uh, get those get those uh, messages out that uh, that maybe uh, traditional media won't automatically do uh, for her. Like, uh, 
you know, if China, if if the Chinese government wants to get a message out, it's it's pretty easy. Uh, it has it has platforms. It has its own state media, like Xinhua. Uh, uh, if it really wants to uh, send a, a jolt uh, into uh, Western media, you know, it, it just takes a, a Global Times editorial. But uh, the, the tools at uh, the presidential office's disposal are are a lot more limited. So, I think the 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 move to uh, to Twitter the 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 revival of her Twitter account. Uh, I mean, the, I think the numbers, you know, show that uh, there it is. There is an increasing interest in what she has to say, and uh, and by extension, Taiwan. That was me talking with Taipei-based reporter Chris Horton. And before we go today, there's good news, or rather the Taipei City Government and ASU Tech are telling us there's good news, especially for anyone who happens to loathe getting lost in the labyrinth that is the Taipei Main Train Station. Now, for those who don't know it, the station houses the Taiwan Railways Administration, the Taiwan High Speed Rail, the Taipei Metro, and also acts as a conduit to the newly opened Taoyuan International Airport Transit System. Now, the station may be dwarfed in size by those in Nagoya, Japan, New York and Paris, but it's still a maze and ASU Tech is promising public information and underground street electronic bulletin board information on its app. So Ross, have you been lost in the labyrinth that is the Taipei main station and would you use an app to navigate your way out of it? Well, I don't believe in getting lost because there's always an exit, but uh, uh, it's, it's a large station. Uh, there is actually fairly good signage already. Uh, I don't think that Taipei Station lacks for signage pointing in the right direction, whether it's to uh, Taiwan Railways, uh, high-speed rail, um, the new airport, uh, not so express, uh, to Taoyuan, uh, or the MRT lines, or, or the bus stations, which have been moving uh, multiple times in the last 10 years. Uh, I, I just don't think it's, it's a problem. This seems to be a, a solution in search of a problem. And for the government to be getting involved, how many apps and websites and, and, and phone services can the city government possibly get involved in? It seems endless. We've talked about uh, the, the number of uh, these government-created uh, apps that are never downloaded uh, on a previous show. Um, I mean, Taipei Main Station is quite uh, maze-like, but I mean, if you walk around it, there's uh, you, you get some muscle memory, uh, and eventually you, you, you find your, your way. Um, I, I loathe to see, you know, a bunch of people uh, navigating, you know, their eyes glued to their smartphones and uh, not being aware of their, their surroundings and, and getting, you know, even more disoriented. Instead of asking us, Gavin, why don't you tell us, have you ever been <laughs> lost in Taipei Station? I, I avoid Taipei train station <laughs> because it annoys the out of me basically going there because I can never find anywhere in there. So you do need the app. But, but you don't use apps, Gavin, so this is not going to solve... So it's not the problem for you. Serving, solving my problem is don't go anywhere near the train station. Well, there are there are there is a large food court. You might like that, Gavin. And if you do, you roll up in a taxi, you walk straight in, you get straight on the high speed rail, and go to where you're going. Which is that's actually a good point because, uh, it, 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 despite some of its flaws, for the airport express, the taxi queue is actually very close um, to where you would uh, do the on, the, the in town check in. Or if you're not doing the in-town check-in and, and going directly uh, to the train platforms, uh, the, where the taxi drop-off and pickup is is actually uh, very close. It couldn't be any closer. Uh, that's one of the few good things that they did build a, a dedicated taxi uh, stand right next to the entrance to the uh, check-in area. And that's where we'll be leaving it this week here on Taiwan This Week. And today I've been joined in the studio by Ross Feingold. Good evening. And Yuen Ming Chow. Have a great weekend. 
Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.